This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. <laughs> and we have been bitching at each other already. We just forgot to do our intro. So now we've done our intro, we can go back to bitching at each other here in our studio on the Sunset Strip. Yeah, I always say that you all just hear the hour that we record. Right. But it's pretty much like this all the time. Absolutely. All right. So I have a surprise for you today, Eric Shaw Quinn. <laughs> And don't you move. <laughs> Which, given the way things have been going so far, <laughs> might be a shotgun blast. We'll see. <gasps> Rubber bullets. Right? That's what I'm hoping for. That'll be the best case scenario. So it goes like this. You know Angelina Farmer, right? One of our beloved party people on the Facebook page. <clears throat> right, absolutely. The gadfly of the Facebook page. What's going on, Christopher? Step, chop, chop. Get mm-hmm. to work. Wednesday question. She Love always her. wants her she Wednesday question. She Thank does. you. Thank you, Angelina. We pay him good money, and he'd just fart around if you'd let him. Wait, wait a minute. Where do, where's my check? When does my check come for have, all that good money? You have to write it first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Angelina had a Wednesday question of her own. And just in case this is your first time listening to us, on our Facebook page for the Dinner Party Show, we post something called the Wednesday Question, which is a naked attempt 
by us to re-promote the podcast we've just posted that Sunday. But we also ask you to talk back to us about your opinions, your thoughts, your feelings. And Isn't occasionally- he great at promoting the show? <laughs> I'm like, this is our naked attempt to try and trick you into listening to our podcast, you fools. <laughs> I'm just trying yeah. to be real. People like real. This is the age of real. That's why Donald Trump became president, because he's a real piece of shit. Absolutely. Absolutely. He tells real lies. Um, <laughs> there was this campaign that Coke did where you lose, like every time you took off the lid of the Coke, there, there was one winner, like, you know, somebody right. was going to win, but everybody else got a lid that said you lose. So your reward for opening their product <laughs> was being told that With you losing. lost, that you were a loser. And I was like, wow, th was that really the message you were going for here? That's, <laughs> that seems maybe not your best plan. No. So anyway, so we so do anyway, the Wednesday. We do the Wednesday question. Angelina has for a- dubious reasons, apparently. Angelina has a Wednesday question of her own. If our gracious hosts and Shea Butters will permit me, I'd like to pose a question on this Wednesday for the party people, she writes. What brought you to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric? Were you listeners, watchers of the Dinner Party Show? Did another podcast mention them? Or were you simply bored and looking for something to listen to and it popped up in a random look or recommendation? Were you in a cast and unable to change the channel? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I have to say... That's the tone of many of the responses, because if there is a through line, it is, I followed Ann Rice on Facebook, and they wouldn't shut up, and eventually I caved and listened, and now I'm hooked. <laughs> Amy Hart well, that writes, works. literally, Amy Hart says, they kept pestering Ann's <laughs> Anne's fans on her Facebook feed, <laughs> so I ignored them until Ann's passing. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. And then watched a YouTube video of Christopher and his mom doing an interview, and then I had to check out the Honoring Ann TDPS podcast and was hooked. The real conversations are fabulous, and I have gone back and listened to all the TDPS Christopher and Eric shows. I now Aww. find myself watching some true crime show, and I'm like, hey, I know this one. Yeah, That's great. That, I love that. I love that. So there were a lot of lovely things. A lot of people we love hearing from, like Brad Shreve and Cindy Conforti and Natalie Gudermason. And, who um, had plenty to say to defend Canada against that horrible, oh, uh, the the unseemly. Oh, oh, right, the Peter Nygaard episode. Right. That she was, was a like, couple, yeah. Please don't. Like, she did not want us to judge Canada for that. She, and I don't, I don't like, judge Nobody Canada would, but she that. was very apologetic for what I a don't. horrible man he was. And it was like, yeah. hey, we're not holding you responsible. I think he was from Finland anyway, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was from Finland. He just yeah. moved to Canada, and I don't think Canada can be blamed for being a good host. Well, I don't want America to be blamed for Jeffrey Epstein. I want Jeffrey Epstein to be blamed for Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, that seems fair. And maybe Elaine. Uh, yeah, Ghislaine. 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 It's like Elaine. Yeah, because I'm really worried about mispronouncing G her name. <laughs> Ghislaine. If you say it three times, she appears in your bathroom. But can you imagine what it's like to be Elaine Maxwell right now, <laughs> just trying to go about your yarn sales business? And it's like, no, she's Ghislaine. No, no, I'm Elaine. She's Ghislaine. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we had this intro because, and I say this all the time. We're back to True Crime TV Club this week. I don't say that all the time. This is one of the most fucked up stories we've done. We've done some fucked up stories, but this one, 
And I think we, we, we won't be getting too far ahead of ourselves to talk about how we came to this case. This is part one of a, of a true crime TV club and true crime movie time pairing that we're doing. For Mother's Day. For Mother's Day. Because that's the way we, you know, that's how we roll. That's how we roll. But I will say, okay, no, I'm not going to get too far ahead. The movie that we're going to watch next week, which is Changeling, starring Angelina Jolie, came out in 2008, uh, was inspired by the case that we're going to talk about on True Crime TV Club today. And the reason we're talking about this case is because you watched The Changeling first many years ago and immediately called me and said, this movie is not what you think it is. It was not marketed correctly. It is about an elaborate true crime story that I have never heard of. And that is the story that we are going to talk about today. And then next week on the next episode, we'll, we will talk, we'll talk about, about yeah. the changeling and we'll talk about that whole completely accidentally seeing this yeah. incredible movie that was robbed. Like there were Academy Award winning performances that mm-hmm. and work that was not recognized. I, yeah. And I totally think it was the marketing. Anyway, but that's next week's topic. What we looked for was the crime because it was so astonishing. It was like, how did I not know about this? And uh, and we found this that details just the crime that gave rise to absolutely uh, the film. And my God, the episode that we are going to discuss for you today, and this is my standard announcement: you are not obligated to go and watch this episode because we're going to try to serve it up for you in enough detail that you shouldn't feel like you have to. But it's pretty great. But it's pretty great. It is uh, Evil Kin is the name of the uh, series, and the episode is entitled. Body Farm. It's season three, episode 12. Season three, episode 12. Sorry, I like to bump into things right as we start important parts of the podcast. (laughs) As the clock strikes, one and three quarters. Gong. Okay. We will begin, at least I think that's right, but yeah. um, Yeah. That's how I remember it. It's, um, but yeah, it, um, it's, it's uh, on Discovery Plus, but it's also on ID... Investigations. So you can watch it for free with commercials, or you can watch oh, it on Discovery+. Plus. Okay, I didn't know that. That's yeah. good. We should give our viewers options. It's one of the things that's great about it. I love um, Discovery+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it's just going to be HBO Discovery Max Plus or something soon, but right now it's Discovery+. Plus and I, it's one of the things I love about it is all those, the true crime stuff. But right, right. all their true crime stuff is also from their ID investigative discovery i think it's but it's the id app and that's free okay that's that's a a, free app that's a free app and you can so you can stream the episodes for free if you uh, with if you're willing to watch if you're willing to watch commercials but if you don't want to yeah okay um this episode begins with something that's becoming increasingly popular throughout all forms of entertainment and we hate it and it's called the framing device and it's where they start with a jarring scene from deep in the story and then they walk you backwards and catch back up with it so i think the new policy here which i'm announcing without having talked to about it with eric first and he hates that is we're going to ignore these framing devices and just get into the story where it begins does that sound Okay with you, or are we going to oh, have yeah. a fight? Oh, yeah, I forgot there even was one. They weren't very committed yeah. to it. It was. It happened, and then yeah, it mo- they moved on. So, yeah, it was not really much of a thing. Okay. So, uh, lots of reenactments in this particular episode. Though not particularly developed. Like, they were yeah. just sort of mostly people, like, not. they weren't, like, saying lines and stuff. They, right. It wasn't like, what was that one, the... 
Perfect Murder. My God, oh, the God. the reenactments on that were that yeah. was just the worst show. My God, yeah, that's just, a terrible we're show. We're gonna get we're gonna get them. Canceled. We have to get rid of yeah, those people. They're 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 inexcusable. They're they the should, worst. They should be in the imagined crime category. Um, <laughs> Thought crimes. Right. Okay. Um, but yeah, the, the, so they don't really, there isn't that. There's not a lot of acting, but there is a lot of talking. portrayals. A lot of portrayals, but they're also the talking heads. I like when there's like a stable group of talking heads they interview who seem to know what they're talking about. And on this particular episode, they seem to know what they're talking about. There are two different authors who have written two different books about the case we're going to discuss. One is named Anthony Flacco, and he wrote a book called The Road Out of Hell. Uh, which I looked up and is well-reviewed and well-regarded. And then there's another author named James Jeffrey Paul who wrote a book about this case called Nothing is Strange with You. So we feel like we're talking to people who know what they're doing. Oh, there's also a Riverside County historian named Steve Leach. And this whole story takes place in Riverside County, California, at a time in history when it was nothing. It was scrub desert. Today it's the Inland Empire and it's covered with suburban sprawl. I actually went and looked at where all this took place and it's like we've driven through it a million times yeah. on the way to the desert and Palm Springs and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so. it's a beautiful part of the world. And it was a beautiful part of the world there, but it was a, a wild and woolly beautiful part of the world. So, so yes. yeah, this was the middle of, it wasn't the middle of nowhere, but you could see it from there. I mean, really close. Yeah. Close to nowhere would yeah. be the name of, our book about the case. Yes. So it's the mid-1920s. We'd like you to meet George and Louise Northcutt, who moved to Southern California from Canada in pursuit of the American dream, which is what the narrator tells us and sounds like a catch-all phrase for and a Natalie, lot of bad motives. We know they came from Canada, Natalie, but you don't have to take this personally. <laughs> we do a lot of Canadian cases here, and usually Natalie's like really excited because it's like, oh, Canada. I think Natalie lives in Iceland now. Does she? This is now a Natalie podcast. I don't podcast. know, but she said she was our Canadian correspondent, she is, she is, so I was trying to mm-hmm. uh, react to her accordingly. But yeah, your thoughts on this will be. We'll look forward to them. I, I'm, yeah, I don't want to. I think Canada comes out looking pretty good. But anyway, so um, George and Louise have two children. Unless so, you count George and Louise and their children. <laughs> we're not. But, but see, they'd leave Canada at the beginning of this story. That's what the good part. <laughs> They could feel they didn't belong in Canada. They were spit out of Canada like a watermelon seed. (laughs) Canada watermelons. (laughs) All right. So George and Louise have two children, 17-year-old Stuart and 34-year-old Winifred Clark. Winifred is grown up and starting to have children of of her own, excuse me. So she stays in Canada to care for her two teen children, Sanford and Jesse. Um, Louise lost a young son when he was six years old before Stuart was born. And Stuart is born five years later, and she is absolutely obsessed and fixated on Stuart. He is the kid who made it, the kid who survived. He can do no wrong. He is her darling boy. And so a lifetime of being treated like a king, the narration tells us, turned turned Stuart into a tyrant. Meanwhile, his father, George, is described as taciturn, quiet, and ineffective. A description of so many fathers throughout history. (laughs) Taciturn, quiet, and ineffective. Well, I have to say, given the sort of um, largesse and uh, financial flexibility that this family demonstrates, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that the father was completely ineffective. No. Apparently, there was a fair amount of capital to work with here. Based on the way people... 
did things as it, as the story unfolds. You'll see. I, mm-hmm. I think that may not be the fairest description. He may just have stayed out of what he just may have stayed at the office. He may have been completely unable to get in between his mother and his son and and inject I mean his wife. I'm sorry, his wife and his son and inject any kind of sanity into that this relationship. Seemed, that yeah. seems really clear. Yeah. About absolutely everybody on the planet. June 1925, they've been living in they say they're living in L.A., but really Riverside County is not L.A. People talk about this vast expanse of Southern California as if it's all the city of Los Angeles. But they've been living in Southern California for a year at this point. They, or were, were they in Los Angeles? They were in Los Angeles. Oh, you're right. You're right. I fucked up. I quit. They I'm not right, up for this. I can't right do this down podcast the street game. From, you're right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Okay. A year in Los Angeles, Stuart befriends his 10-year-old neighbor, Philip Scott. And Stuart becomes obsessed with the little boy. They play the piano together, and as they tell us, a dark urge rises within Stuart. And I'm going to say, the reenactments were incredibly well-developed, but the reenactment of pedophilic physical, like the preamble to it, the touching part, really is reenacted in this. And I was a little skeeved out. Like, they show Stuart sort of rubbing the boy's hand and touching his arm in a way that's really, like... Um, yeah, they, they didn't go much further than that. But yeah, it was, it was, Stuart is creepy. Stuart, Stuart is, is creepy. Insane. He's definitely, he's got some problems and they started to manifest and they, they did in fact manifest with this neighbor boy. Yes. Philip, who was not down with it. Not down with it. Ran away, told his parents and they called the police. The police show up to investigate and because it's the mid 20s, oh this child doesn't know what he's talking about and this is all crazy and he Pay just no attention to the the yeah. person. They also reveal that um they actually part of the reason they left Canada. This was unclear to me. Like they they say this later like they were moving a lot apparently to escape the fact that Stuart was trying to molest young boys. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. <laughs> I have to say, um, we see this a lot in these specials where what were multiple series of incidents or crimes get condensed into a single one that they can dramatize. And I think that's what we saw here with the story of Stuart Northcutt, that there was a lot of molestation or attempted molestation happening it that was the family a, was aware of. It was a beginning of. problem. Yeah. The family seemed to have been aware of it, and it seems to be part of the reason they moved to Los Angeles from Canada. And whether it was one incident that did this, as we just described before the break, or several, Stewart is being emboldened by his family's protectiveness of him. Right. It, rather than getting him help, his mother covers for him. And that seems to have been a real mistake. A real mistake. And then, because the heat is on, and the cops have been there at least once, he tells his mother he wants a farm. 
but he's never shown any inclination towards farming at all. So naturally, they buy him an isolated chicken ranch in a town called Wineville, California, which is in the site of present-day Riverside County. And Stewart is soon, amazingly, overwhelmed by the work required to maintain a chicken farm that he has no experience in running. Yeah, and the description of the work was like, well, that sounds like a chicken farm. Yeah. Like, you have to uh, clean the nests and get yes. collect the eggs and care for the chickens. And it's like... Yeah, that, that that's sounds like, it, yeah, that's yeah. a chicken farm. Yeah, that's, that's There are chickens on a chicken farm, yeah. and that's what happens. And apparently he was not prepared for that, and no. I don't know what he was expecting. I, it seems clear, but it is a, it is an inference that the, the, the story makes, is that he wanted the chicken farm because he wanted an isolated place yes. to behave, which may or may not be true, but... It is how it plays out mm-hmm. um, in the long run. He may have wanted it as a way to get him away from temptation. I don't know. Yeah. That was an ascribed motive on the part of the show, which I thought, well, maybe. Well, and, okay, so 1926 now. The farm is underway. He's having his difficulties with it. But instead of hiring any help, which it seems like, as you pointed out earlier, there would have been the money to do through his family, he arranges for his sister's young son, Sanford Clark, to come down from Canada, to move down from Canada, and help him tend the farm. And almost immediately, he begins violently, sexually abusing Sanford Clark. Um, He beats him into submission and rapes him, which we again see through disturbing reenactments. Uh, the, The morning after the first instance of this, Sanford, according to who, we're not really sure, because Sanford, I think, has long passed away and it's not interviewed. Sanford wants to leave... But there's nowhere to go and nowhere to make a phone call. And the description of this farm is that at the time it was it, it was in the middle of nowhere and you couldn't get away. But it's one of those moments where I'm like, you know, I think Eric Shaw Quinn, he would have hoofed it out of there and not stopped until he had met up with someone. By fucking <laughs> yeah. God. Anyway, I don't want to I don't want to blame this kid because the 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 psychological effect of that I level of violence. I would have a good one right in the face I, and I, then started. Maybe yeah. I would have walked the first five miles I'd have walked on Stewart. But this is one of those times where the definitions of parenting and abuse were different than what they are now. And I'm not apologizing for it, but I'm just saying what the manner in which a child could be manipulated through power and authority and the fear of, like— Honest to God. Like, I look at my own childhood, which wasn't this far ago. Yeah. Um well, wait a minute. This is 1926, Eric. Your childhood was like the 60s. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a, you know, don't age yourself too far. I said it wasn't this far away. <laughs> that's what I, I said. You were saying it was the 1926 wasn't that far apart from the 60s. No. And I was like, no. Okay, good. Well, but we're on the same page even then. Even in relatively recent times, the behavior towards children has changed pretty remarkably yeah. during the course of my lifetime. The stuff, the stories, you've heard them. The things yes. that, yeah, I now look back on it and go, really? That really happened? That was okay? Just, you know, it's one of my favorite examples, just lawn darts. You know what I mean? <laughs> Tell us about lawn darts. Lawn darts were these um, enormous, giant-sized um darts with sharp metal tips on them. Right. And here's how the game was played. You had yellow darts and your opponent had red darts and you stood at opposite ends of your front yard with a ring at your feet, Mm -hmm. the color of your opponent's darts, and your opponent threw giant darts at you. (laughs) 
And the person who got most darts in the ring, and you know, not in your eye socket, yeah, um, won. Oh God! I was like, and at the time, like they were advertised on television, and I may have mm. even wanted some. I may have even had some. I doubt it, but this is the kind of but thing like, that. Prompted... And I look at them now, and it's like, really, that was an okay. That was okay. That was okay, and it prompted a classic Saturday Night Live sketch in the '70s with Jane Curtin, where the the child child protective authority reviewed dangerous. Halloween costumes for children, and one of them was called Invisible Pedestrian. <laughs> and it lives rent-free in my head ever yes. since. Okay. Yeah, it was, yeah, so, like, being concerned about the welfare of children is a more recent concept than we might think. And at this point, in 1926, like, this, the child was sent to Southern California for labor. He was promised that he would be going to school in Southern right, California but he wasn't. as well. But... It was also in terms of, but it was in return for working on the farm. Right. This was a 13-year-old boy mm-hmm. who was sent here to work on the farm. And I just, yeah. And so the abuse is both violent and sexual at once. And he starts calling Sanford my little darling. And he manages to convince um, Sanford that he wants what's being done with him and is a participant, which is going to be a horrible precedent for what comes later. Um, a few weeks after Sanford's arrival, Stewart's parents come out to the farm for a visit. Uh, by all accounts, they had to know something was wrong with this situation, but there's no record that they made any protests at all. Again, that will make sense later when we find out more and about this story. And they witnessed the abusive nature of the relationship yes. between Stewart and Sanford, and uh, with, between his young nephew and and Stewart, and and they were down with it, like. They even participated to some degree yeah. in the, because that's how you talk to children in 1926, I guess. I don't know. Like, that's what I mean about right. it just being a very different sort of sensibility about the welfare of children. Um, meanwhile, back in Canada, Sanford's older sister, there are two – I got confused here. There Are there two – is this Stuart's sister who was still living in Canada who didn't move with them? Or is this Sanford's older sister? This is Sanford's sister. Sanford's Jessie. okay. So not the sister we mentioned earlier. No. Sanford's older sister starts to get suspicious because the letter Jesse. The letters that are being sent, which are apparently being written by Sanford, don't sound like him. They sound very strange and stiff and formal. And um she starts to get get her she starts to make a plan, which we'll get to in a bit. So in fall 1926, um Stuart is basically going out and attempting to molest, forcefully and violently molest and rape young boys that he finds on the roadside. Um, Now that he's got the farm sorted out. Yeah, and he will sometimes abduct the victims and keep them for several days, and he is making Sanford help him. This is part of him making it feel like Sanford is part of this evil plot. Um February 1st, 1928, Stewart targets a young Mexican teenager named Julio Mendez at a roadside fruit stand. The boy's about 15 or 16 years old. Um, The teenager fights him off, and Stewart is so enraged at this, he pulls out a gun and shoots the kid through the thorax at very close range. And this, we believe, is Stewart's first murder. But the inference here is that for a couple of years prior to this, he had been bringing he'd been abducting children bringing them home and raping them and then setting them free again yes. and the children didn't say anything because yeah. who would believe children so 
again, it gets back to that very different relationship sensibility in and around children. And uh, you, when you add on to that, boys who don't want to talk about sexual abuse, which has always been a problem. You know, boys uh, seem especially shamed around the topic of having been sexually abused. I guess. I don't know. But I think that it shame seems to be a reaction in general yes. to having been sexually abused. And people feel complicit or they can't. Or Stuart may well have said, I'll kill your parents or whatever. And oh, I think children yeah. often believe that's that story, too, because it's already had this horrible thing has already happened. So. Well, and if Sanford didn't believe that before, he's going to believe it even more now because Stuart brings him the severed head of Julio Mendez and says to him, you need to destroy this and the other pieces of the body that I have chopped up, essentially. Mm -hmm. It's the first murder and it's the first time Sanford is being asked to cover up for a murder and now he knows his captor is capable of murder. And so he's even more terrified. Yes. March 10th, 1928 is the date that this story takes another dramatic turn. Stewart is on the prowl in the city of Los Angeles and he spots a nine-year-old boy named Walter Collins. This will later be described as Stewart's mistake, but it is a mistake that takes a long time to be cleared up. And has massive repercussions, though they won't all be covered in this particular show. Exactly. And it's it's actually in Stewart's old neighborhood. It mm -hmm. takes place in Stewart's old neighborhood. Um the reason people characterize this as a mistake when it comes to Stewart's methodology is that he is taking somebody who is likely to be missed, whereas previously he's been targeting migrant workers, often who have been separated from their families of origin, who have remained behind in Mexico and have sent their young children up to America to work. This is different. He's plucking, as you said, a kid from his old neighborhood, from the middle of the city, someone whose mother almost immediately reports him missing, and the report of the missing uh, child makes headlines throughout the city. She also starts to make a big stink about it. And this is one of those, I guess we have to say this now, that this special did not really go into most of what we were going to talk about next week with the movie The Changeling. It's because like they the, didn't even explore the that changeling story. Is, the thing that's really interesting about that is that The Changeling is from the perspective of, of the victim. Right. And the victim's family. And right. this is really about the crime, which I really, it's one of the things I really loved about The Changeling is that the crime, the criminal is in there, but it is not a story about him. And it's specifically going to be a story about Walter's mother. Yes. And what was done to her and what she went through. Again, it's not covered here except to say that the disappearance of Walter Collins made a lot, got a lot of press attention. And it brought a lot of heat down onto Stewart that he might not have uh, experienced otherwise if he had continued to target people out in Riverside County. Yeah, I think the bigger mistake was abducting and killing children. But of course. this was a particularly, you know, like if you wanted to keep doing that, this was not the, the choice to make. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that he fucked up as badly as he did. But anyway, OK, yeah, it, it's one of those things. It's those weird tonal things with these shows where the people that they're interviewing are sort of have to slip into the head of the killer. We have to do it here sometimes to make these statements like, boy, you made a big mistake. And it's like, yes, but if he contributed to his ruin as a serial killer, yeah. it was an excellent mistake. And thank Except God. Except it was a horrible thing. So anyway. Five days later. Okay, March 10th, 1928 is when Walter Collins went missing. Five days later, Stewart's mother, we're out in Wineville now, Stewart's mother, Louise, shows up for a three-day stay out of the blue. Now, whether or not she was suspicious about what was happening out on this farm, they don't really say. She's just dropping in to see how her darling baby boy is doing. 
For a couple of days, which is astonishing to me, Stuart manages to keep her away from the chicken coop. And then Louise slips out one really night. I don't know that that's that astonishing. I think you could keep me away from a chicken coop for an infinite period of time with very little effort. Here, have a cup of tea. Oh, that sounds much better than going near a building full of chicken shit. Yes, I, I would be happy to do that. Yes. Okay, okay. That makes sense. She's not a farmer. That's right. She's not a farmer. Right. She's from the city. She would have no interest in the chicken coop. But one night she slips out, and inside the chicken coop, she sees Walter Collins asleep inside, and he's in terrible shape. He has clearly been horribly abused. And this is one of those sequences. I, I just, just couldn't. couldn't. I, I, yeah, jaw on the floor. She strikes her son and knocks him to the floor. She picks up an axe. She breaks the lock off the shed in the chicken coop. She goes inside, and she kills Walter with the axe. And then she makes Stuart and Sanford participate in the murder by giving them the axe and making them level a blow against little Walter Collins's body. When Sanford refuses, Stuart hits him across the head with the broadside of the blade, and eventually Sanford goes along with it. Stuart then orders Sanford to bury the body of Walter Collins. Wow. <sighs> yeah. Like... That that's like this resets the benchmark for overprotective mom. I mean, just she was upset that he was going to get caught. Yeah. That was the thing she was upset about. The fact that he had abducted this child and was abusing him—that wasn't it. This little child whose face was all over the papers in Los Angeles because he had been reported missing and by his mother. And who was a neighbor of yeah. hers? Yeah, the child of a neighbor of hers. Yeah. yeah. That that wasn't what upset her. It was that her son might get had done something stupid and might get himself caught. That was what she was upset about. So her solution was to kill the child with an axe. Um, and so what begins to happen on the farm in Wineville after this is that Sanford becomes fully involved in the murders that follow Walter's murder. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio um, when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And 
While it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. May 16th, 1928. So we're now a few months past the disappearance of Walter Collins, and nobody knows anything about his murder or what's happened to him. And I think it's worth noting how compressed the time frame becomes. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I'll like, note that. Like, we're at May <laughs> yeah. 16th, 1928. By September 1928, an enormous number of things have happened. Right, and so, uh, and yeah, exactly. And so we're in Pomona, California, May 16th, 1928, uh, this is a, this is pretty close to where Wineville was, and we'll tell you what happened to Wineville, quote unquote, at the end of the episode. But um, Stewart targets twelve-year-old Lewis Winslow and his ten-year-old brother Nelson. He rapes them and beats them for six days. Um, while Sanford is talking to one of the brothers, Stewart buries the axe in one of their heads. He tells Sanford if he doesn't kill the other brother, he's next. Sanford chooses to kill the little brother instead of Stuart. I mean, Sanford is sitting there. Stuart has given him the axe. He could just as easily have turned on Stuart. I mean, psychologically, there's more going on than this one hour of television was able to really it get really into. It really was one of those moments of like, I just, yeah. yeah. July 27th, 1928, two months uh, after those murders, Sanford's sister, remember the suspicious sister in Canada who thought these letters from my brother don't sound authentic? She has managed to show up at the farm. Uh, She wants to see what's going on. So she makes a surprise visit out of nowhere. Privately, Stuart takes Sanford aside and said, I will kill your sister if you say anything. Which is another moment of like, they've got Stuart outnumbered. Now's the, anyway. There are axes everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, right. And that night while Stuart is asleep, Jesse, Sanford's sister, confronts him and says, what is going on here? And he says he thinks or he will later tell people, investigators, that he thought the only way to save his sister's life was to tell her the truth in his mind at the time to tell her how dangerous Stuart was and basically not to fuck with him. Right. So she in one of those. Um, uh, like ingenious moments, but also I think the first character who was really recognizing the constraints of the time that they were living in, she says, if I go to the police with this crazy story, nobody's going to believe me, but I need to get my little brother away from this guy. So what I'm going to do is go back to Canada and report him for an immigration violation, report Sanford for an immigration violation. So she goes back to Winnipeg, which was the same. Uh, this is a this is a moment of Winnipeg pride for Natalie Guterman's son. This is where Peter <laughs> Nygaard's reign of terror would happen years later. In August thirtieth, nineteen twenty eight, in Winnipeg, she goes to um, the immigration authorities and she says, "My brother is in the United States illegally and he needs to be brought home." Back in California, immigration agents show up and search the farm. Stewart gets away during this search. They find Sanford hiding in a closet. Initially, he won't cooperate. Um, and, oh, my God, I completely flubbed my notes here. What does this even mean? Meanwhile, goes and gets his mother, Louise. Oh, that's right. Stuart runs off and goes to his mom, which right. is, you know, and says, I'm in real trouble. We need to get out of here. His mother, Louise, 
abandons Stuart's father to go with her darling baby and there murdering boy. <laughs> Stuart's father, uh, there was a brief but intense celebration. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's, he's finally rid of both of these lunatics. Right? Um, after several days of interrogation, Sanford opens up to authorities and he reveals that he murdered three, that three boys were murdered on the farm. Um, a search of the farm reveals that the bodies have been moved, but there are evidence of human remains found on the site, little bone fragments, items of clothing. Four days after Sanford's confession, Louise and Stewart are captured in Canada. Um, they then interview somebody who shows up for the first time. His name is Jack Brown. He's a San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office uh, agent, retired. He recounts how his father was with the department, and he interviewed Northcutt in Canada found him arrogant. Stewart asserted he would never be convicted or extradited. They didn't have anything on him. His mother would take care of everything. And in November 1928, he and his mother were, in fact, extradited. Uh, Louise confesses that she committed the murder of Walter to protect her son, Stewart. Um, in January, on January 2nd, 1929, because, like, you're right, we're booking now. Things are happening. Right. I mean, we're really... The, by November, they're back in the country, and by January 2nd... Stewart's on trial. Stewart stands trial for the Winslow brothers, and this and this is actually how the special referred to him, the Mexican boy he beheaded, which was like, yeah, he has a name, and you identified him earlier in the special, Julio Men- Men- Mendez. Um, let's not call him the Mexican boy he murdered when you're identifying all of the other white victims by name, but whatever. I, yeah. That was one of those moments of like, ew. Oops! Um, you meant this was what you meant to come back and fix this in the edit, and you forgot. And uh-huh. the announcer read it, and you were really sorry. And now it's out there. Stewart is found guilty of all three murders, and he is hanged on October second, nineteen thirty. His last two words are "No, don't." Oh well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, like so. It's nineteen thirty. He's gone. So by the, on. He kidnapped Walter Collins in March of 1928, and he's dead mm-hmm. by October 2nd, 1930. Once things got rolling, yes. they got rolling. Yeah. And that's why they, the Talking Heads characterized the Walter Collins abduction as a mistake, because it's what brought— I mean, it things yeah. started happening within—yeah, within two years, the entire thing was wrapped up. Sanford Clark— went on to serve honorably in World War II, marry and raise two children. There's a story that I wanted a lot more of. I would really love to know his life story because he, as they characterized it, they said he refused to be um, taken down by having had this happen. He refused to let this destroy his life and went on and insisted on having, well, pretty much anything he did would have to be better. Oh, my God, yeah. But having a, a... positive experience for the rest of and apparently did apparently did i want to know more about this i think the book that i referenced at the top that was by anthony flacco who's one of the interviewees in this the road out of hell talks a lot about sanford's life after these crimes so i'm gonna he's read that really key point. to this like he really he's yeah. it was his confessing to the police because all jesse had done was get him deported and he is the one who pointed the police in the direction of all of this? Carnage. I just and that move, that that swift, deft move of the sister of like, yeah, I know I'm not going to be believed, so I'm going to. 
get him taken out of the country. It really kind of makes sense in the context. Like, we're looking at the time period when women were, when they were like, well, maybe we should let women vote. You know what I mean? (laughs) You know, like, that's really the time period that we're in. And Mm -hmm. so women were not stupid. They were just not being given much in the way of rights. And so I would think that Jesse, being a product of her times, had figured out ways to be powerful in the ways that she had power. Right. You know, to use what agencies she had right. to accomplish what she could accomplish. And that's a really brilliant move. I mean, that's a smart woman because she couldn't do much, but she could do that, and it's all it took. A little sting at the end, <laughs> which is, you know, after serving 11 years, Louise Northcutt, Stewart's mother, is paroled for good behavior. And then... Her husband dropped a piano on her. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? She axe murdered a little boy. I, I just, and she was paroled for good behavior. Like, this was a different time, as we have been saying. I mean, really? I just, yeah. Fuck, that was man. like, really? Only 11? Okay. Okay. So, this is going to be, a, I think, a weird post. But if she had a 34 year old daughter at the beginning of this, mm-hmm. by, at the beginning of this story, I'm thinking, and being, the times being what they were, she was probably there was probably not a lot left on the clock. Oh, Jesus, Louise, let her rot in jail. I mean, really, like I, my yeah, God. like God knows George wasn't that his name. I don't think he would be dying to have her home. I don't, I don't know. She probably, the, yeah. God knows she wasn't going to get to see the grandkids again. No, since one of them was Sanford. Jesus Christ. I and, and right, you're and, okay. So it's a strange wrap up because. There's a lot to this story that we're going to talk about next week that I thought would be covered to some degree in here and wasn't. It's like the, it's like the East Wing of the Wineville Chicken Coop murder stories. Oh, I promised at the beginning, Wineville changed its name. This scandal was so hideous right. that the city actually changed its name to Miraloma. It's, it's called Miraloma today. It's in the dead middle of the Inland Empire. And it, it's a lovely place, and... I'd, you'd be hard pressed to find a chicken farm, I would bet. I'm sure, but, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was it was really that kind of catastrophe. It I was mean, that big a scandal in in its moment, and at the time, one of the most horrible serial killings. Just hideous. Like I'm, I I would be hard. I think you would be hard pressed to find something worse subsequent, like as bad, but. My God. I, I, and I, here's the thing, too. Did, I, I didn't, I, I'm pretty well versed in true crime, and I didn't know anything about this case until we watched the movie that we're going to discuss next week. Never heard of it. And is it because the victims were boys? And I'm not saying people, but there's something about sexual violence with men where for a while it would be censored at a level. You weren't going to see a mainstream movie about, I mean, you had your own experience trying to sell projects in Hollywood that dealt with those topics yeah. and having people be like, it was a strange blend yeah, of HBO homophobia. HBO actually and, told me that, yeah. that a, a script that I had written where there was sexual violence against men um, frightened them. And I thought, this is HBO, right? You right. guys are HBO, right? Like yeah. I was like, are you kidding me? Right. Yeah. Like it is, it is I think, challenging. Yeah. Um, it is, and I, I'm not sure why exactly why, except for societal norms. But I guess that could be part of it. Yeah, you know, I'm I I would think that it would be because it was so heinous and because it was crimes against children. I did, it surprised me. Yeah, it, it surprised me when I saw the movie. 
that I did not already know about it. Yeah. In fact, I even and I kept going and because the movie builds itself as being a true story. And so I kept thinking, right, this is a true story. Because it seemed like they must have fictionalized this. Yeah. It was so horrible so and horrible. so horrific um, that it seemed like something they had to have made up. It was yeah. like a horror story. And I'm going to tell you, like 20 years ago, I would not have been keen on somebody making a really accurate movie about the Wineville chicken murders because of the element of homosexual sexual sadism in it. I would not have been like, I want this to be the representation of any any version, no matter how fucked up, of of queer sexuality on the screen. I want I would want you know, like now there's greater diversity of representation. We've got greater gay storylines, but well, back then we were yeah. This isn't really a gay storyline. No, it's this not. Is, but this is about again violence against he. These were not his peers. These yeah. were children. Yeah, he was so a pedophile. He was a pedophile, and that's a very different thing. That is that is not the same thing in any way, shape, or form. But there was a time where bigots would all characterize oh, us. My God, as... I would not be alone with people's children. Yeah, totally. Most of my adult life, because I still wouldn't, because my nerves. <laughs> you're, you're not really big on kids, but you <laughs> no. were so afraid of an but accusation. But I did not yeah. want to be left alone with anybody's kids That's because horrible. I was so terrified of being accused of anything, which I would never have done. But yeah. because there was such a predisposition to feel that way about gay people, I. I actually avoided wow. being around um, the children of my own friends. Well, that's horrible. It was yeah. the, it's the world I grew up I in. I know, I know. Yeah, no, I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying it's horrible that that was the world. We talked earlier about the changing attitudes towards children, and I feel like there was another thing we watched, or maybe it was something I watched recently, where it sort of started to shift in the Victorian era in the United well, Kingdom. It was the Christmas. It was when we came yes, up. It was right, the Christmas that was special it. that we did. It was yeah. the how the... Um, the part of the rise of Christmas to the thing that it is now was born out of thinking of children in a different way. As that, something other than chimney sweeps. Right, or yes. small, irresponsible adults. You know, like, <laughs> we actually, we've actually begun to regard them as, you know, like, have, it is a significant period of life and it should be possessed of certain qualities like play and yeah. imagination and growth and the, the yeah. kinds of things that not hard labor on a yeah, chicken camp with a serial working, killer right yeah not yeah. not being in exchange for going to school which should be that was one of those a right anyway yeah, you know right. which he didn't even really get to do but yeah i i think that i think it's part of the entire the story the other thing that has changed and this really is more for a topic for next week was the um the change in attitude, the changing attitude towards women mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in our culture as as adults, it is, I think, always well and good to uh, think of the the good old days, but I think it's also worth noting for whom those days were so good. Like right. yeah. if the, if if you needed to be um, a straight white male in order for it to be the good old days, then how good were the days really? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Like, yeah, I'm happy for them, but mm -hmm. like, what about everybody else on the planet? Yeah, um, yeah. So maybe we're still striving to get to the good old days, since uh, we're, we're only just now beginning to allow other people to participate in the party. Yeah, children and women certainly being significant components mm -hmm. of that uh, that population. I just it I marvel at 
some of the things that even from my own lifetime, right, um, that I've witnessed or even accepted as just kind of the norm. Okay, name one. <laughs> name one. I know because we don't have a lot of time left. Rachel Maddow's coming on after this, and we've got a lot of sponsors, and I, I like to cut our episodes short. <laughs> <laughs> None of that's true, by the way. <laughs> uh, well. I think, like I say, the next week is really more about. I feel, I feel like this whole episode is we really want to start next week's episode, but we well, can't yet. It's a pairing, and so yeah. this this episode was born out of next week's episode, so they're very much interrelated. But I, the examples that I would give would be how women were regarded, right? How women were reacted to, right? During the course of my own lifetime, seeing the things that were said to my mother. The way in which people reacted to my mother in my own lifetime. Oh, God, yeah. Were like, really? She's just a grown up, right? right I yeah, totally. Don't, that seems like you're talking to a child. Right. You know, it was sort of like larger, somewhat more responsible children. Like, yeah. But that was very much the role. That was what I witnessed in, mm-hmm. um, you know, just over the, the course of the my own laws life. at banks about what women were allowed to do in terms of their own banking, especially if they were married, women couldn't do things that their husbands could do on the account, or just the presumption, yeah, that well, you bring your husband in and we'll work that out. You yeah. know that that sort of notion of yeah. I think we can say this as a tease for next week. Walter Collins's mother was a single woman. During this time period, she was it's a single mother. Yeah, she was a and single so, mother, well, yeah. working single mother. Exactly. In the middle, in the mid twenties, and um, was you know her son was the center of her life, and this monster, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, showed up and and took him, and she did you know what you would expect parents would do, and what happened after that was. Unfucking believe it was a two-hour movie. At it was least. A two, and, over two hours. Yeah, over two-hour movies. They could have gone. It could have gone longer. There was like they. There were things that were compressed, but but it's the same thing that's also interesting to me about. It's where I really started taking note of it is the time that time frame, mm-hmm. like from March 1928 till the fall of 1928 is really when this story happens, and mm-hmm. it's when the changeling happens, and and it. Um, it, I was impressed. Okay. Like, in terms of of catching a criminal, of bringing them and bringing them to justice, that's a pretty, that's pretty on top of it. And I'll say, I'll say this: if you know anything about the case and you do watch the movie, uh, Changeling, Clint Eastwood directed it. Angelina Jolie starred. We're going to talk about it next week. It's interesting to see because they drop in. You have a different experience with me. I watched it twice. I watched it years ago when you recommended it. I knew nothing about the case. Then I right. watched it again. And I saw the little tidbits of the actual facts that are worked in earlier. Oh, and my God. Like, oh, it's oh, okay. really great. Yeah. The, the incorporation, the way I, I was really glad to have seen it in this mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. because I now had the crime firmly fixed in my head and the way it unfolded because before the crime was a revelation to me. Yeah. And totally. so I really only reacted to it in context, but this gave me the sense of it unfolding along at the, on a parallel time frame. Yes, absolutely. And again, it made me a, a more, much more aware of the amazing efficiency with which this happened 
especially given the circumstances. You'll okay. see next week. That's next week. So the movie we're going to be discussing as part of this pairing is Changeling. It's available on HBO Max, but it's also available to rent and buy from other streaming platforms and, of course, on DVD, I'm sure. Uh, that's going to be next and week. And it is well worth watching. You don't have to, but it's a really good movie. Indeed. And until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're, li- you're listening. If I sing it, I can get it out more. Uh, TDPS presents Christopher. And Eric. <laughs> Thanks. This is TDPS.